Jonathan and Allie Chrisman and their daughter are dear friends of ours. They love Christ and they're walking by the Holy Spirit and they're a, a big blessing to our family. And in a recent email, I asked them how they're doing and uh, how they're seeing God's grace in their life and in, in what ways that they're thankful. And John emailed back, we have definitely seen the Lord's grace recently and have much to be thankful for. Then John explained how Allie had bronchitis in October and November. And near the end of his email, John added, we are thanking him for bronchitis. Uh, why in the world would they thank God for bronchitis? It's, it's not often that people thank God for wheezing and coughing up blood. That's usually not, not the way that it goes. Well, there's more to the story. In November, Allie had a chest x-ray. The x-ray showed a nodule on her lung. Allie had more testing. She saw a pulmonary specialist. She had a CT scan. Here, Allie had a pulmonary arteriovenous malformation, which affects blood flow between the heart and lungs and is essentially a highway for bacteria and blood clots to flow freely. Allie had surgery at UPenn, and the problem was corrected. Pulmonary arteriovenous malformations are dangerous in part because sometimes there aren't symptoms. So here's what, what John's email said. So in God's providence and care, we are thanking him for bronchitis. Without it, we would not have known about this completely separate and silent pain-free problem in Allie's lung, which the doctor said had a 10% chance of causing a heart attack. God was gracious with her and gracious with us through it. I thought their story illustrates the goodness of God's law. See, God's law is good, but it's not good news for sinners. It's not easy to hear. But the law is good because it alerts us to the problem deep within us, sin and guilt, a problem that we don't always detect. Without the law's diagnosis, the sickness of our soul would have silently killed us. As difficult as it may be, God's law diagnoses the fatal problem of our transgressions against God's law. Then God's grace in Christ heals us through faith so that, like John and Allie, we can say with gratitude, so in God's providence and care, we are thanking Him for His law. Without it, we would not have known about our sin and miserable condition in our hearts, which God said has 100% chance of killing us, God was gracious with us through it. Yes, the law is strict. But it diagnoses us so that the gospel can heal us. Here's what I'd like to, like to submit to you today, that you walk away with this point today. The law and gospel are God's good gifts to us believers the law because it helpfully diagnoses our problem, the gospel because it powerfully heals our problem, therefore be grateful for both the law and gospel. Paul has been making a, a strong case that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In hearing that truth, there's a potential danger of getting the wrong impression that the law is bad or worthless or that God no longer demands obedience to his law. There, there's a way to hear 
Uh, justification by faith alone and to foolishly criticize or discard God's law and its ongoing role that, that it plays in our relationship with God. And so with that in mind, here's the first point. The law helpfully diagnoses our problem of repeated transgression of God's holy and good law. In verse 19, Paul asks the question, why then the law? And he answers, it was added because of transgressions. That's one great purpose of the law. A transgression is a violation of God's law. It's God drawing a line in the sand and then saying, do not cross that line, and then us taking a big step across that line. So God gave his law to Israel not to save them from their transgressions, but to reveal to them their transgressions and need of righteousness. Luther said God gave his good law to reveal unto a man his sin, his blindness, his misery, his iniquity, his ignorance, hatred and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the deserved wrath of God, end of quote. Saints, God gave us law and gospel, not just gospel. Like the gospel, the law comes from God, therefore it cannot be bad. God has good purposes for it. The law diagnoses, the gospel heals. William Hendrickson said the law was given to man in addition to the promise in order to bring about within his heart and mind an awakened sense of guilt. A vague awareness of the fact that all is not right with him will not drive him to the Savior. Only when he realizes that his sins are transgressions of the law of God will he, when his knowledge is applied to his heart by the Holy Spirit, cry out for deliverance. End of quote. Hendrickson is right. See, a vague sense that something is wrong with us, that doesn't help us. That doesn't help. We need to know specific ways that we have transgressed God's holy and good law. Unbeliever or believer, we need to know how we often cross the line that God has drawn for us in the sand. Unbeliever or believer, knowing that we cross God's line should lead us to cry out for deliverance. Hearing the obnoxious beeps of your carbon monoxide detector hurts your ears. I've been there and you know the story. But it sure is good to know that there is a gas leak so that something can be done about it. The detector doesn't solve the problem, but it helpfully alerts you to the problem. Paul adds, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The Mosaic law was for a time until Christ arrived. In verse 19, Paul is talking about the offspring, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came. He was the promise. And the promises were made to him, as we found out last week. And he came to whom he was promised in order to free them from the curse of the law. In verse 19, Paul is talking about the law and gospel. And I wonder if you can see that in the text. Now, the part about angels, it's hard to understand. Uh, lots of interpretations out there, and I'm not going to solve it for you. 
But Acts 7 verse 53 mentions that the law was delivered by angels. So in some way, God used angels in the giving of the law. However, the focal point uh, of the end of verse 19 is not angels, but the intermediary, the mediator. This takes us to the second point. God's law is good, but God never intended it to do what he intends the gospel to do. In verse 19, when Paul says, by an intermediary, it is more literally by the hand of a mediator. A mediator is someone who stands between God and the people, and God gave his law to Israel through the hand of Moses. The offspring that Paul mentions in verse 19 is Christ, and the mediator or the intermediary is Moses. So, Paul is contrasting the promises given to Christ in the Abrahamic covenant and the law given to Israel through Moses in the Mosaic covenant. He's talking about these two things. Paul is contrasting the gospel with the law. Then Paul says something perplexing in verse 20. He says some hard things that are very hard to figure out sometimes. He said, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And I don't know exactly what he's getting at there. I'm trying to track with his logic in that, but why are you saying God is one? So here's what I think he's getting at. And I'm open to, you can critique me afterwards and say, that's not it. You missed the whole point. I'm open. All right. An intermediary implies three parties. God, the intermediary, and Israel. God gave the law to Israel through Moses, the intermediary. Verse 19 even mentions the law being put in place by angels. So, the point, multiple parties are involved in the giving of the law. But God is one. When God gave Abraham the gospel promise of Jesus Christ and justification by faith alone and the inheritance of eternal life with God, he gave the gospel promise directly to Abraham with no mediator, from God to Abraham. So I think Paul is once again showing the superiority of God's promise over God's law in salvation. Paul is arguing for the superiority of the Abrahamic covenant over the Mosaic covenant to prove justification by faith alone and not the law. Saints, this is really important because Christ is preeminently glorious and beautiful and powerful and effectual and wonderful to do for us what the law could never do. And yet... Countless people still count on the law or their own self-righteousness to justify them as if the law was superior to Jesus. Paul is magnifying Christ. Paul is magnifying Christ. Paul wants you to hear these verses and rather than criticizing or dismissing God's law to simply understand what it was meant to do for you and then to treasure Christ for what he did and does for you. Friends, the law of the old covenant cannot do what Christ of the new covenant does. Now a quick aside. When you study the Bible, if you're anything like me, you get to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, books like that, you read all these obscure laws and you're thinking, what on earth is the purpose of all that? Okay, here's a little trick. Verse 19 gives an answer. Verse 19 helps you understand what all those laws were all about. 
So when you read Galatians 3, 19 and 20, what should you conclude? You should conclude that the law is good and was given because of transgressions until Christ, the promised offspring, came to the rescue. You should conclude that the gospel promised in the Abrahamic covenant is superior to the law given in the Mosaic Covenant. You should conclude that there is reason to thank God, to worship God, to praise God for His strict law that He uses to move you to Jesus. Let's keep going. Here's the third point. The law is good and works alongside the gospel, but only the gospel gives life. Paul asks in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Do you understand his question, why he's asking that? Paul's addressing and answering an argument the Judaizers were likely leveraging against him, an argument that said Paul was dismissing the law altogether as if the law was bad and the law was useless. But that objection was really to miss Paul's point of what he's getting at. Paul wasn't slandering the Mosaic law, nor the moral law. He was saying that the law doesn't give eternal life. Uh, Paul answers the question of whether the law is against the gospel. He says, certainly not. Or you could say, absolutely not. He's saying that is not what's being said. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. God didn't intend the law to give spiritual life to those dead in sin. That's why God sent his righteous son. Dr. Hendrickson said, the law can never make a man spiritually alive, cannot regenerate him or impart faith to him whereby he would be enabled to accept the righteousness of God in Christ, end of quote. We must not trust the law to do what only the gospel can do. God gives life in his son, in his son. Now if we preach the law without gospel, go to church, read your Bibles, pray a lot, don't do drugs, be nice to others, give your money away, tell the truth, don't fight, honor your parents. Respect authority, be a good person, follow Jesus. If the core of our message is law or morality or how to be a good person, which is what many churches preach, then we are not preaching good news of life-giving power. We are preaching condemnation with a Jesus veneer. To preach law without also preaching Christ is to preach people further into sin, guilt, and hopelessness. Preaching Christ is where the power is, the life-giving power. And, and on the flip side, to preach Christ without the law is to preach a Savior no one thinks they need. Preaching law and gospel is life-giving. That's why we do it here and we teach it here. The law wasn't intended to give life, but Jesus gives life. So we preach law and gospel together. Now here's a really simple way to think about it. God sent his law and God sent his son. Did he send them to accomplish the same thing? Saints, 
If God sent the law and his son to do the same thing, then, as you would conclude, one of them is redundant. You don't need one of them. It's simple. The law was given to convict. Christ was given to save. I think some of you are wondering why I keep pounding justification by faith alone. And just so you know, I'm pounding it precisely because Paul is pounding it. Okay? It's very simple to, to know. We need this message repeated because we often expect the law to do what only the gospel can do. We struggle with this. Okay? So let me give you a few examples that I hope serve you of how we do it, of how we make that mistake. Okay? Consider your parenting. Oh, boy. I got to take a look in the mirror here. This is true of me as a dad, okay? We set rules for our kids and we expect them to follow the rules. That's good. But we then expect our rules to keep our kids in line. That's not so good. That's not so good. Our kids repeatedly break our rules and we get upset. Why are we surprised that our kids break our rules? They're lawbreakers. And what do lawbreakers do? They break the law. All right, so even though we've eloquently explained for them a million times before not to do that thing, they do that thing again and again and again, and we get offended. How could you not live? Because we think that our laws should have changed them by now. Well, there's more. When our kids disobey, we sometimes talk to them as if we've never done what they did <laughs> and as if we are the standard of righteousness. Christina saw on a church sign the other day that said, be the standard. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Instead, <laughs> instead of humbly identifying with our kids in their struggle with sin and instead of giving them gospel in light of their law-breaking, we self-righteously act as if we're the standard of righteousness and then we say dumb things like, how could you do that? Or, I would never do that. Or, you're a better person than that. We're expecting the law to give life. Kids need law. We just shouldn't give them law in a way that suggests the law gives them life. Our desire for our kids to fall in line, look at yourself here, parents, might act, our, our desire for our kids to fall in line might actually be our desire for our kids to love the law instead of Christ, to be good instead of trusting the one who is good. Who can transform the heart of your child, not the law? Your rules won't change your kids. You must give your disobedient kids God's law so that they understand in their minds that their sin offends God and is primarily a transgression of God's law. You must give them law so that they feel their desperate need of a Savior, but then you must give them the only thing that can change them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. After you give them law to help them understand the seriousness of their sin, give them Christ so that they have hope and forgiveness of change. Hope of change. In light of their ongoing trans, uh, transgressions, help your kids see 
that through faith alone, Christ is their righteousness and he's their power to change. He's their motivation to behave differently. Parents who constantly preach morality to their kids without also preaching Christ are just heaping burden on their children and teaching them that they don't need Christ. Be honest. As parents, we sometimes trust the law to give life. It can't. Our parenting should be flooded with justification by faith alone. Flooded with it at every last turn. Another example. Some of us, oh, I'm going to go there, put too much emphasis on politics. Our rhetoric may sometimes suggest that legislation or the presidency will change people. It won't because the law doesn't give life. America needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, not better legislation or an ideal president. Another example, pew-sitters. Pew-sitters are different from worshipers who come to church hungry for God and hungry for His Word. Pew-sitters go through religious motions. Pew-sitters assume that they are giving God enough when they give Him irregular, casual, and mediocre religious performance. They, They assume that God's okay with that. They shouldn't assume the law to give life because it can't, only Christ can. Another example Some of us here, I'd include myself in this, uh, are at least sometimes insecure and struggle deeply with the assurance of salvation. Uh, We may feel uncertain, anxious, or maybe fearful. We may feel like we don't love God enough or we don't do it enough and, and therefore he doesn't really accept us and he doesn't really love us. And at the heart of that very real struggle for I think probably more than a handful of us in here, is thinking that the law gives life. Um, In moments of doubt or uncertainty, we must go to Christ who is our righteousness, assurance, and comfort. Why look to the law to do what it can't do? The law can't give life. Only Christ can. A few other examples. When you compare yourself to others, you're trusting the law to give life. When your self-worth or confidence increases or decreases because of the level of your productivity on a given day, you're trusting the law to give life. When you try to please everybody and alter your views and personality, depending on who you're with, you're trusting the law to give life. Now, there are tons of applications I wanted to give you a few, but my point is that though we think we understand justification by faith alone, and though we think we understand the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, we still have a whole lot to learn and and do sometimes expect the law to do what it can't do, to give life. We need to be reminded of the words of Christ from John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Your flesh doesn't help you. The law doesn't help you get right with God. Christ alone. Isn't that what Paul is saying? And as good as the law is, it will never bring a dead sinner to life. More rules can't make spiritually apathetic people uh, care about God all of a sudden. But, but, 
when someone hears God's law and gospel together and the Holy Spirit moves and changes them, they will surrender their head for Christ. Their head to the sword for Christ because he alone brings the dead to life. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 2. To be candid with you, through the years I've grown increasingly disturbed, I would say disgusted, when people reduce the gospel and Christianity to follow Jesus. Do this and don't do that. Or, as someone said from the stage of the largest church in America, just do good for your own self. The good news of the Christian faith is what Christ has done and is doing for us, not what we're supposed to do for him. As important as that response to the gospel is. Are you following me? Are you with me, church? I think Christians need the message of justification by faith alone more than ever. Next point. The law was a helpful imprisonment until Christ came and freed prisoners, the prisoners, by grace alone through faith alone. Verse 22 and 23. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now Paul uses the word scripture in place of the word law. The scripture reveals God's law, and the law shuts up or hems everything in with no possibility of, this, of escape. The law is a prison of rightful condemnation. F.F. Bruce, great scholar, he said this, since it is God's law, it serves as God's instrument to accomplish his purpose. It cannot of itself impart life, but by showing the bankruptcy of human effort, it shuts men and women up to the grace of God as their only hope. The incarcerated captives need hope. They need hope. Where is their hope? Well, Paul explains the reason for the Scripture's imprisonment. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Christ is the promise of freedom. Christ is the promise of liberation. Christ is the promise of pardon. Before faith, we were incarcerated by the law. The law watched over us as we dwelled in the cell of sin. But Christ came he, he was the promised offspring, and he came to set the captives free. Paul doesn't mean to say that, that Old Testament people didn't have faith. They did. Consider Abraham. And God gave the promise of Christ to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel. Many trusted in God's gospel covenant promises, and yet the law imprisoned God's people until the promise of salvation in the Messiah was revealed in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. He brought it to light. This means that the Old Testament church before the cross saw Christ dimly in types and shadows with less clarity. But now after the cross, the church sees Christ vividly in the apostolic witness of the gospel. Old Testament saints uh, saw and believed a dim gospel. We see and believe a vivid gospel. 
Uh, so the law's incarceration was actually for a limited time only. Dr. Hendrickson states the point quite well. Who will want to be delivered unless he knows that there is something from which he needs to be delivered? But once men know this, and this knowledge has been sanctified to their hearts, they will hail the rescuer and place their trust in him, that is, in Jesus Christ, the anointed Savior, the one whose very purpose was and is to save the lost. End of quote. That's so well said. I wish I had written it. Saints, the law has spoken our condemnation and the promised offspring has come so that we hail the rescuer and we trust him alone for liberation, trust him alone for freedom, trust him alone for pardon. Paul argues further about the helpfulness of the law as a guardian. Here's the last point. The law was a necessary and helpful guardian until through faith in Christ, God made us his beloved children. Listen carefully to verses 24 through 26. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now, guardian is an intriguing word. It's a, he, Paul uses a different analogy here. The Greek word is pedagogos, from where we get the English word pedagogue. A guardian was not so much a teacher or a tutor as we understand that role today, but a slave appointed to watch over a child, to train that child's behavior, and to keep that child safe. A guardian was a disciplinarian, but also a protector. Uh, and a guardian was for a time, because as we all know, children grow up. The guardian prepared the child for life. The law prepared us for Christ who has come. The, the promise of the offspring was fulfilled. It came true. And Christ is our righteousness. And Christ is our life. No more guardian. Do you understand? So think of it like this. Think of a nanny. But you got to put Mary Poppins aside. Okay, that's not going to work here. But I want you to think of a frosty and icy, strict nanny. She has lots of rules, and the kids are not having fun. And she keeps the kids in line, and kids don't really want that kind of nanny. However, even if she's frosty and icy and strict, she does protect the children from harm, doesn't she? The law kept watch over Israel for a time until Christ came to deliver. Christ came as righteousness to be received by faith, not law-keeping. The nanny of the law did not rescue or justify, but it did keep us and protect us for a time until the rescuer appeared and brought faith. Now that the rescuer has come, the Mosaic law is no longer our guardian. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The old covenant is just that, old. There is a new covenant. But be careful. The law is abolished in one sense and not abolished in another sense. Calvin explained it like this. Be very careful with your thinking here. The law, Calvin says, 
so far as it is a rule of life, a bridle to keep us in the fear of the Lord, a spur to correct the sluggishness of our flesh, so far, in short, as it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that believers may be instructed in every good work, is as much in force as ever and remains untouched. End of quote. So in other words, God's moral law is still in full force today. It has not changed. And we still need it. We still need law. Paul is not arguing the law away in this sense. Then Calvin explained the sense in which the law was abolished. He writes this. The law annexes to works a reward and a punishment. That is, it promises life to those who keep it and curses all transgressors. Meanwhile, it requires from man the highest perfection and most exact obedience. It makes no abatement, gives no pardon, but calls to a severe reckoning the smallest offenses. It does not openly exhibit Christ and His grace, but points Him out at a distance and only when hidden by the covering of ceremonies. All such qualities of the law, Paul tells us, are abolished, so that the office of Moses is now at an end so far as it differs in outward aspect from a covenant of grace. That last line is key. Let me read it for you again. So that the office of Moses is now at an end, so far as it differs in outward aspect from the covenant of grace. So, as Paul silenced the Judaizers in the churches of Galatia, he also comforted and united the Jewish and Gentile believers with these words, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Following the Mosaic law, all those obscure laws that were for a time is not the mark of a Christian. That's not what it is. Okay? Faith is the mark that then results in grateful obedience to God's moral law, okay? But but doing the Mosaic law is not the mark somehow that you're a Christian. Faith unites us to Christ, and in Him, both Jew and Gentile believers are all sons of God through faith. You're not a child of God because you're human. You're not a child of God because you're a Jew, or a Gentile. Now, be clear on this, everyone was created by God in the image of God, but not everyone is a child of God. God's children are believers, united to Christ by faith alone. This is what the Bible teaches. It's not the brotherhood of all man by a human, you're a a child of God. No, that's not the case of Scripture. John 1.12 says essentially the same thing that Paul is saying. It says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believers and believers only have the right to be called children of God. Paul is talking about adoption, this beautiful and spiritual adoption. It is an awesome doctrine of Scripture. He is saying that no one is a child of God because of natural birth. How many of you were born Jewish? No one? Then this is really good news to you. Right? The Gentiles are accepted by faith, just as the Jews are. 
We have to trust in Christ. Adoption is beautiful. He's saying, uh, Paul is saying that people enter the family of God by God's gracious adoption. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is the basis of our adoption. Dear children of God, the law and gospel are God's good gifts to us believers. The law because it helpfully diagnoses our problem, the gospel because it powerfully heals our problem. Therefore, be grateful for both the law and the gospel. Are you grateful? One more thing. The way to show your gratitude for the law and gospel and the way to show your love for Jesus is to obey God's law by the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. The law serves the Christian by continuing to uncover sin, but it also instructs the Christian in how to love God. Jesus said plainly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The way to show that you actually love God, like I love him, now I want to show that somehow. How am I going to show, display to God and to man that I really actually do love him, that I really actually know him? Well, the way to do that is to obey God's law by the power of his spirit at work in you for his glory and your greatest joy in Christ. So someone who says that they love Jesus but then discards God's law as if it was irrelevant for us today does not actually know Jesus. They don't have the Holy Spirit. God's true spirit Spirit-filled children love God. They love His law, and they love His Son. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you communicated through the pen of Paul what amazing intellect was the Apostle Paul. He probably, next to Jesus, was the greatest theologian to ever walk this earth. And he has written some very hard things sometimes to understand. And God, we get so thick-headed that we think that your word is boring and we don't understand what it says. And so God, I just want to thank you and praise you for your law, for your gospel, for all of scripture. All of scripture cannot be minimized to the gospel It's all good news in one sense, but it's law and gospel through the whole thing. So God, I just pray that we rejoice in that, that we hear your law the right way, however you want us to hear it. And then we hear the gospel the right way, and we keep the law and the gospel separated in the sense that we know what they are and how they're different, and and we know how the law and gospel are, are meant why you gave us each, and then we take them together, God, and we rejoice in Jesus. So I pray that this sermon somehow would encourage your people to love the law and the gospel 
and to incorporate that into all of their life, into their parenting, into their work relationships, into their marriage, into the way that they relate to their family and the culture, the way that they watch movies, the way that they read books, the way that they come to church, that this law and gospel would work together to strengthen your people. Help us never from this pulpit, God, to give law alone. Help us never to give just Christ alone where people have no idea why they need the Savior. Help us to give law and gospel in the balance where Christ can look glorious because he does what the law can't do. So we should rejoice in him first and foremost. So help us to have that balance here at Jerusalem Church for the joy of people. God, help us now to rejoice together in your law and gospel. All for Christ's glory, we pray. Amen.